Hello everyone, my name is Oldar. Welcome to another episode of Ask Me About North Korea, a podcast about the most reclusive country in the world. In this podcast, I'm answering the most widespread questions about North Korean politics, society, and culture, in a short and concise manner, based on factual evidence. If you like this podcast, I would be grateful if you could share it with your friends, leave a positive review, make a donation, or subscribe. You can also visit the podcast website, www.askmeaboutdprk.wordpress.com. There you can access episode transcripts, as well as some other materials, such as book reviews, film recommendations, and online events. As the name of the podcast suggests, please feel free to ask me questions in your comments and reviews. I will do my best to answer them in the next episodes. And now, let's start. People fleeing from North Korea are not a new phenomenon. Since the division of Korea after the end of the Korean War, citizens of the DPRK have fled from their country for not only political or ideological but also economic and personal reasons. So the area from which my question stems is quite well studied. There have been hundreds of interviews, media reports, memoirs and research articles written in this area. However, in this episode I would like to give you a quick introduction on the topic and, more importantly, explain why the numbers of people fleeing from North Korea have been dwindling even before the COVID-19 outbreak. Of course, I will also provide some contextual explanations of why people flee from North Korea, how they do it and where they usually end up. I will also illustrate this through a couple of individual stories. So, let us start. If you have been following my podcast or reading any news in North Korea, you probably have figured out that North Korea is not only one of the most authoritarian, but also one of the poorest countries on earth. Furthermore, its government has little concern for the international concept of basic human rights. A combination of these factors would normally be sufficient to start thinking about how to move to a different country. That is exactly the reason why I call these people refugees and not defectors, since in most cases they are fleeing from life-threatening situations. That said, you could flee for economic reasons too if you happen to be aware of how bad the situation is comparatively to other countries. Here we shouldn't forget about the strict North Korean system of information control that has been in place ever since the 1960s. Therefore, not that many people had been aware of the economic or political situation in other countries until the 1990s, hence they couldn't compare their lifestyles to anyone else. Furthermore, for a developing country, the socio-economic situation in North Korea was not all that bad until the 1980s. Of course, by any means it wasn't a rich country, but the government did provide a relatively satisfactory standard of living and nutrition if compared to other developing and least developed countries. In fact, at a certain point the DPRK had even become an escape route for some Chinese citizens who were fleeing from the horrors of Mao Zedong's cultural revolution in the 1960s and 1970s. On the other hand, leaving the country by using bribes or other illegal activities was very hard in the times of Kim Il-sung due to the strength of bureaucratic apparatus. It was practically impossible to bribe people back then since the DPRK became a relatively cashless society. Accepting money, which couldn't buy you much, was not worth it 
since everything was distributed and assigned by the state. For taking a bribe, however, you could have very well ended up in prison. Still, some people did flee from the country, but back then it usually happened for political reasons. Such defectors and refugees were usually members of the Workers' Party of Korea who had ideological disagreements with Kim Il-sung. Such people would usually end up somewhere in the Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China. During the North Korean famine of the 1990s, the situation changed dramatically. The general populace didn't have to compare the situation domestically with the situation abroad to understand that something was going disastrously wrong. Thousands of people were dying in the streets of North Korean cities. On the other hand, all the government institutions were practically paralyzed, including the border guards. That was when the first massive increase in defections took place, especially among the general populace. These numbers have been growing until 2009. For illustrative purposes, I will attach a diagram with the number of North Korean refugees entering South Korea to this episode's podcast blog post. Naturally, these numbers will not account for those North Koreans who flee to the United States, European countries, or those who remain in China, but it could still serve as an illustration of a general trend nonetheless. The most common strategy of fleeing from the DPRK back then was to simply cross the border with China into Jilin and Liaoning provinces in northeast China. Some would then continue with their flight to a third country, usually somewhere in Southeast Asia, where they could reach embassies of other countries with asylum applications. The most popular destinations were, and still are, naturally, South Korea and, a distant second, the United States. Some European countries, like the United Kingdom, have also been known to take on some North Korean refugees. As the number of people aware of South Korea's riches kept growing, so did the number of refugees. However, before they could finally make it to safety, North Koreans did have to cross on other countries, and oftentimes it was China where they ended up transiting. In fact, many North Korean and Chinese brokers found such flights to be a very lucrative business. The prices for escaping the country kept growing. The minimum price levels used to be somewhat around 2,900 US dollars in 2009, but they reached the level of almost 10,000 US dollars in 2019. Some even reported such numbers as $13,000 or $16,000 per person. When talking about North Korean migration to China, however, we have to distinguish between refugees and economic migrants. While both are usually driven by socioeconomic reasons, the refugees would rather never return to North Korea. Economic migrants, however, become a new phenomenon in the DPRK in the 1990s. This social group included North Koreans who would travel to China to purchase goods and then sell them off on the North Korean black markets. The North Korean government is naturally unhappy about them, but they still do not punish them as harshly if compared to the people who actually wanted to leave the country for good. Normally, a punishment would be something like several months or a year in a re-education camp, where they would have to recite the wisdoms of the great leaders. Unfortunately, a much better perspective than spending 10 years in a labor camp. So, who is an average North Korean refugee? Well, statistically speaking, it is an unemployed middle-aged woman who received only secondary education and defected from the North Hamyang province, which borders both Russia and China. 
quite peculiar is the fact that women, generally speaking, are very predominant among refugees. For example, in South Korea, they constitute two-thirds of the entire North Korean population. This fact is one of the main reasons why the problem of human trafficking became so acute on the Sino-North Korean border. Sex traffickers trick young women into fleeing the country by promising them free or cheap transit, but end up selling them off to Chinese families as wives or maids. The story of Kim Joy about the hardships her family experienced in North Korea and the challenges she faced as a result of being trafficked once she crossed the border to China is similar to that of many North Korean women fleeing from this hardship. Her family in North Korea was very poor, so when her stepmother tried to marry her off in 2009, she instead chose to flee to China. Naturally, she had no money to pay the broker who bribed the guards that kept watch over the border. So consequently, she was sold as a bride. Upon her arrival to China, she was paraded around villages with crowds of men gathering to bid on her. One of them eventually paid the equivalent of 3,000 US dollars to get married. After being sold off, she was under constant surveillance of his family so she would not escape. Some time after her arrival to her new home, Kim discovered that she was pregnant. Because having a child could have made her escape even more challenging, she had tried to induce a miscarriage. Despite her efforts, Kim gave birth to a baby girl, whom she resented at first, but who before long became her only reason to continue her struggle. It was around that time when a member of a South Korean humanitarian organization approached her and offered his help to flee to South Korea. Her story and experiences, unfortunately, are not unique. Many women are forced to do that, becoming victims of human trafficking. The famous story of Park Yumi, who authored a book titled A North Korean Girl's Journey to Freedom, is another painfully similar example. If you are curious about that book, check out my review using a link that I will attach to the podcast blog post. But let us come back to statistics. Ever since Kim Jong-un's political ascent, we have witnessed a dramatic decrease in the number of refugees. Some of the main reasons for that are stricter border patrols and inspections on the North Korean side, as well as rising costs for defection. Nevertheless, what became way more important is the changing migration policies of China. As of now, any North Koreans entering China face deportation back to North Korea if discovered by Chinese authorities. Officially, this used to be the case for a much longer period of time. However, up until the early 2000s, the Chinese police officers would usually turn a blind eye on the illegal immigrants, refugees, as long as they did not try to make their way to the South Korean embassy. That eventually changed, as Pyongyang asked for assistance with preventing such crossings due to the fact that the refugees were increasingly seen as a political problem. Beijing agreed to cooperate, which naturally resulted in stricter border inspections and careful oversight over the local residents and potential intruders in Liaoning and Jilin, especially in the Yangbyan Korean Autonomous Prefecture. Upon return to North Korea, refugees may face charges of treason and be punished with imprisonment, torture or death. All this stimulates North Koreans to relocate outside of China as quickly as possible. There is also an alternative route available through Russia, which is the other nation that directly borders North Korea, but the situation there is even more complex. 
The Russian government has been actively deporting North Koreans ever since the 2000s, so the numbers of North Koreans fleeing there had not been that high to begin with. Moreover, the Russian border was much harder to cross, due to much better security. On top of that, the number of ethnic Koreans living in the Russian border regions if compared to China, and especially Jilin, is much smaller, so it is harder for the refugees to establish networks or find help. There are other reasons that have been changing the flow of North Korean refugees. Apart from imposing very strict border control measures, the North Korean government has been resorting to new and more innovative measures, which have not been tried before by Kim Il-sung or Kim Jong-il. For example, legal migration opportunities were introduced by the Kim Jong-il administration, which allowed people to receive a passport and travel for work to a different country, with China and Russia being some of the most popular destinations. The assumption behind that idea was that many people left the country for economic reasons and then returned with illegal goods to sell them off. Thus, the government concluded that it could be a good way to institutionalize the system, take control over the migration processes and cash in some foreign currency. From what we know, this passportization strategy worked quite well until 2017 when the UN slapped North Korea with the strictest layer of sanctions which banned North Korean workers from working in third countries. On top of that, as the CSIS points out, North Korea has engaged in a long-term effort to discredit the concept of fleeing to the South. Specifically, high-profile media events involving refugees who returned from South Korea would focus a lot on how difficult the life was for them and on how unwelcome they were when they lived in the South. Unfortunately, there is also a certain grain of truth to what North Korea bases its propaganda on. There are indeed some refugees who actually flee back to the North, as I was talking about in episode 15. This has to do with a different factor, which I would describe as a decreasing enthusiasm of the South Korean government to deal with the refugee topic anymore, for political and financial reasons. Upon arriving in South Korea, North Korean refugees are automatically considered to be South Korean citizens and victims of the oppressive terrorist regime in the North, in accordance with the South Korean legislation. Furthermore, they are also entitled to significant government subsidies to integrate into South Korean society which at a certain point reached around 24,000 US dollars as a lump sum, not counting all the social benefits. This sum is much lower now, and is paid out as a monthly benefit. Anyway, the government's financial concern over the influx of people seeking permanent residence in South Korea led to a tightening of resources. Screening for individuals claiming to be North Korean defectors became more stringent, and the amount of money given to each defector was cut too. The government argued that the measure was meant to prevent ethnic Koreans living in China from entering the South, as well as to stop North Koreans with criminal records from gaining entry. Nevertheless, in political terms, that signals Seoul's growing irritation with a never-ending stream of refugees. Politically, as the current administration of President Moon Jae-in keeps seeking for ways to improve Seoul's relation with Pyongyang, South Korea's traditional support for defectors has been an irritant. Generally, the South Korean left-wing nationalists have not been particularly welcoming to North Korean refugees, who tend to either become human rights activists or swing very hard to the right, politically speaking. 
Tis quite telling that the only two North Korean defectors who were elected to the South Korean parliament, Taeyong Ho and Ji Sung Ho, are vocal members of the conservative political movement. But even the conservative governments in Seoul are getting fiscally tired of funding North Korean refugees. After all, quite a number of the financial cuts to the settlement benefits actually happened under conservative presidents. Finally, as I was saying in episode 2 and episode 26, COVID-19 became a final nail in the coffin of the North Korean immigration as Pyongyang completely shut its borders starting from February 2020. Even movement of goods, not to speak of people, is practically impossible now. Thus, it is barely surprising that there were only a few defections in 2020, most of which happened in the first month of the year, before the country shut down completely. To sum up, tightening border security in North Korea, crackdowns in China, increasingly dwindling political will in South Korea, and most importantly, COVID-19 have been the main causes of the fall in the number of people fleeing from the DPRK. Hopefully, as the epidemiological situation continues to improve, more people will be able to cross the North Korean border once again. What is your opinion on the issue, though? Do you think that we will see a resurgence in the numbers of refugees once the pandemic is over? Or has the system of secretive flights from the DPRK been destroyed completely? Leave your opinion in the comments below or in the review section. If you like this episode, please leave a positive review on the podcast platform or make a donation on the podcast website. Also, feel free to provide your feedback on this episode's quality and ask any questions about North Korea that you might have. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy and stay tuned.